Let me take the word of God and turn to Mark chapter number 8, please. Mark chapter number 8. Mic sound okay? Good. Right, we had made a little adjustment. I think it's a little loud. Just uh, wave me down or just come adjust the volume. So uh, I think it sounds okay though. It's more for those that sit in the nursery. Sometimes mamas get trapped in there, papas get trapped in there throughout the service, and um, it feeds into there. So because I can get pretty loud. Um, if you will, we'll stand for the reading of God's word out of reverence for it. And um, take our reading this morning out of Mark chapter number 8, <clears throat> verses 34 through 38. Mark writes this according to the Spirit of God. When he had called the people to himself with his disciples also, he said to them, Whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will, it, what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Let's pray. Father, we love you this morning. Um, we love you. Father, we love you so much and thank you just for the privilege it is to um, stand before you. Father, I love that song, Before the Throne of God Above. Father, it speaks to the Son. I'm standing in our stead, in our place. We understand, Father, what had to happen and what must have been accomplished uh, for that to even be a possibility. Jesus Christ himself stands, Father, to this day, and therefore we can come boldly to the throne room of grace, petitioning um, whatsoever, Father, we desire according to the, uh, the glory of the Son. So, Father, I pray um, on the, um, by virtue of the sacrifice that was made on our behalf that we would come boldly this morning, Father, and beg you to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, Father. We beg you this morning by your spirit to take the word of God um, into the hearts of men and women that sit under the, the hearing of the word of God, Father, and do things with it that only the spirit of God can do. Father, um, as we've been studying throughout the Gospels, um, we glory in the fact that you are able to give blind men sight. We glory in the fact that you're able to give deaf men hearing. Father, we glory in the fact that you're able to make lame men stand. And we glory in the fact that you're able to um, release the bondage of satanic power, Father, over, um, over a man's soul. Um, we glory in that, Father. And we pray that those things would happen this morning. God, that um, if there's anybody that doesn't have eyes to see, ears to hear, Father, feet to stand, um, or under the slavery and bondage of uh, Satan or sin, Father, that you would, by your gospel power, this morning, um, take it to the depths of the heart, and um, it would be like dynamite in the soul. God, that you would bring us all to the end of ourselves, that you would make us more like your son, 
Jesus Christ, Father, because we understand that that is your will and that is what you desire, Father, and that is exactly what you deserve. So, Father, we come to the word now and pray that you would help us to do it faithfully, Father, fervently, and that um, you would accomplish many mighty things, Father, through uh, just a few minutes um, in your word. So, God, we commend this time to you now in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. I know that some of you have not been with us, and um, if you have not, we've been simply trekking through the book of Mark, and what a blessing it's been um, to just spend a little time with Jesus. And I know that we do that all throughout the um, Old Testament and all throughout the New Testament, but there's something specific, something uh, particular that the Gospels offer each of us, and that is a unique picture of the Old Testament fulfillment, or the New Testament fulfillment of all Old Testament prophecy. Um, it is what the apostles in the epistles um, uh, expound upon and lay doctrine um, out of. It is, um, but here we see the lowly, the meek, but also uh, often the righteously indignant, suffering Savior coming into the world to save us from our sins because we uh, no doubt cannot save ourselves. We've entered into a new portion in the book of Mark um, as we've been trekking through it. Um, chapter number 8, you almost see a complete divide um, in the ministry of our Lord and Savior. Uh, for the first eight chapters up until this point, we've really seen uh, the Lord Jesus Christ active and engaged in ministering to the people and really um, illustrating for us what the um, kingdom is like what the gospel is like through um, the miraculous work and words of, of Jesus. He's going throughout the towns. He's going throughout the cities, not only um, Jewish by nature, but also the Gentiles. And he's reaching out and he is um, healing all sorts of diseases. Um, he's giving sight to the blind. He is giving de uh, hearing to the deaf and so forth and so on. And it gives us a little insight into what the kingdom will be uh, like. Um, and, and, and in chapter number 8, you see almost a turn to where the Lord Jesus now is done with a major portion of his miraculous ministry. And he's going to hone in upon a few good men. Only good because uh, the Lord Jesus Christ makes men good. There's none good, no, not one, except for him. But in him, he makes men righteous. Um, so he's, he, he, the, the last year of his ministry, he's going to somewhat refocus his ministry um, to the twelve, training them for uh, when he would finally leave the world. And he would place upon them the onus of uh, carrying the ministry and the gospel um, into the world and into the nations. And that's exactly what we see um, in the book of Acts. Um, so he spends a great deal of time over the last year um, just ministering to... <clears throat> The twelve, his disciples. Um, we know that the Apostle Paul refers to Jesus Christ as the chief cornerstone and the apostles being the foundation stones upon which are built the church, the temple, the living stones. Um, these men are monumental. These men are essential. These men are necessary. And Jesus Christ understands that. He knows that. Therefore, he pours himself into that. And in this portion of Scripture, we really get um, the clearest presentation of what he would finally and fully do as the earthly man Christ Jesus. 
Uh, to this point, it's been somewhat shadows and um, it's been illustrations. It's been parabolic by nature. Um, in verse number 31, we read this though. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things. And in verse number 32, it says he spoke this word plainly. Um, he, he, he at this time um, turns to the disciples and he no longer speaks in parables. It's no longer illustrations. It's no longer um, kingdom miracles to illustrate the kingdom. Um, he literally he sits them down after two, two and a half years of ministry. And he just, he's just, uh, the, the word could be, uh, translated confidently, boldly, openly, plainly. Um, he just he just lays it out. Um, there's no more. Jesus Christ does a miracle, and they have to, and they come to him, and they say, "We didn't really understand what that was about," or you know, we, he's a parable, and um, he, 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 they come to him, and he say, they say, uh, "We really don't know exactly what that means. Could you explain it to us?" Um, here, the Lord Jesus Christ turns in his ministry, and he turns to them, and he lays it out just clearly plainly and he does the same for us and we spent a couple of weeks ago i'm um, really digging into that the suffering of our lord and the demonic nature of even the apostle peter here as he um, seeks to thwart god's plan um, by um, encouraging jesus to pursue the kingdom without suffering um, suffering is a necessity in the kingdom um, it was a it was a necessity for the kingdom to be birthed and it is a necessity for the kingdom to um, be propagated throughout all the world. And in verse number 34, um, he explains a little bit more about that. Um, he, he moves now from his purpose and his mission of being the suffering Savior of all mankind and of all those who would believe. And in verse number 34, he turns the tables and he pulls the people in as well as the disciples. And he begins to teach them the implications of the previous passage, what that means, and what the gospel is in some sense anyway. Um, not that he lays out all of the implications or all of the, um, uh, the data concerning the gospel in this portion of scripture, um, but he gives them a, some light concerning what it is and what it does and what is required of a man. You know, um, that's a great question. What does the gospel require of a man? You know, um, because I I remember listening to, I believe it was MacArthur years ago, um, talk about the greatest controversies that he's had um, in his life and in his ministry. And in beginning and starting out the ministry, he never would have guessed that the greatest um, controversy that he, would ever ha that he would ever encounter is that which is over the gospel. You know, Of all the controversies that he's had and all the controversies that he's went through uh, for 30, 40, 50 years of ministry in the church, um, you know, more churches, more, and we're talking about controversy within the bride of Christ, within the church of God, within um, the, 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 the first fruits of the, of the firstborn, Jesus Christ, um, that he would have to battle um, for and over um, the, the nature of the gospel. And that is the truth in which we're living in today. Um, that there is a battle, um, not out in the world, it's not raging um, among the pagans, it is within the church. <clears throat> um, what is the nature of the gospel and what does the gospel require? Well, the Lord Jesus Christ here lays it out for us openly and, and plainly. And you've got to love the forthright personality of Jesus. Um, our Lord is simply honest. Throughout the gospel uh, and throughout the gospel's um, Jesus never asks or never seeks to lure anyone to himself as a follower um, by the offer of an easy way. Um, he doesn't use gimmicks. Um, he doesn't hide the difficult truth concerning the Christian life. 
Now he seeks to challenge those men and those women who are under his tutelage, who are under his teaching and preaching with the truth, with the truth of God's word. He awakens men, not for wealth and not for fame, but for fight, for suffering, for persecution, and for oppression. This is what the gospel brings. And he awakens them with a boldness and a moral courage in their souls, um, with an offer of a way, a life which could not be higher and harder, yet at the same time, Jesus promises that his burden is easy and his yoke is light. The life that he has to offer is not the easy life, but it is a glorious life, as it is a life in, in him. It's not one that we would choose. It's not one that we would write. It's not a story that we would um, devise. Um, and that's why he's the wonderful counselor and we are not. And that's why he devises the plan and we don't. We would seek, as we looked a few weeks ago, um, we would seek to advance the kingdom as Satan does, or even, even as Peter argued, um, as an earthly king and a magisterial um, person might do through, through force and through power, but not our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Um, he seeks to advance his kingdom, to birth it out of his sufferings and out of his trials and out of his tribulation and eventually out of the cross. And we should love him for it, every bit of him. Honesty is something, and we should love him for the fact that he's honest. Honesty is something that is difficult to find, um, especially in, in leadership today. Marketing strategies of the world teach how to sell things um, by methods that we would refer to as bait and switch. It's deceitful by nature. Um, they know how to grip your affections and to lure you in, and then when they've got you, you learn the truth about what you actually purchased, and you're kind of stuck with whatever it is unless you can sell it to somebody else. No, Jesus is the exact opposite. There is no deceit. There is no lies. Um, he is as straightforward as straightforward can be. Um, and this is desirable of all great leaders. It's always been an admirable characteristic. I was reading of a, uh, an Italian patriot um, or nationalist that some would, would, um, whom would love, um, who appealed to their recruits in these terms as they're about to go to battle. He said, I offer neither pay nor quarters nor provisions. I offer only hunger, thirst, forced marches, battles, and death. Let him who loves his country in his heart and not with his lips only follow me. He also said, soldiers, all our efforts against superior forces have been unavailing. I have nothing to offer you but hunger and thirst, hardship and death. But I call on all of you to love, who love their country to join with me. Um, it was Sir Winston Churchill in the Second World War that offered his men, quote, blood, toil, tears, and sweat. In a sense today, that's exactly what Jesus does for us as well, but not from a nationalistic perspective, but from a spiritual, of a spiritual nature. This is what he calls his people, his disciples to, and when he calls them to himself to tell them. That's, what, that's his message to them. That's his message to us as well. You know, some uh, may come to this passage and try to limit the scope of this verse to the twelve. And that was something unique to them. Um, and thus we can exempt ourselves from this service. But the text doesn't allow that. Um, he calls to himself in verse number 34. He says, when he had called the people to himself with his disciples also, he said to them. He calls not only his disciples, but he calls all the people, the people that were around. Clearly there's a misunderstanding in the previous passage. And it may be that there's other people that are coming and garnering. He's garnering more attention. So, so, so to, to, to clear up the confusion, he calls not only the disciples, but he looks and he sees people around uh, living, or, uh, listening in on the public nature of the event. And he calls all the people to him. Why? Because this is true for everyone. 
This is basic discipleship class 101. Jesus stands as the teacher. Um, there are those who are out there today teaching a higher life discipleship class. They teach their various ways and various types of Christians and various tiers in the hierarchy of the Christian life. That they're normal, basic Christians and that there are various forms of a higher life, you know. I'm a Christian that is more, uh, there's Christians that are more serious, more devoted, more submissive and, and somewhat weirder than the average. That there's tiers of Christians. That there are ones that, uh, you know, who might have a burden for evangelism, evangelism and there's, then there's those that don't. You know, there are Christians that uh, may read their Bibles every day, and then there's some that, that, that don't quite make that. There are Christians who are fervent in prayer, and then there are Christians who aren't. There are Christians who homeschool their children, they pray about missions, or they desire to be a preacher, but then there are those that um, they don't. They just live nominal Christian lives. They carry on with their career and their family, and um, they're, they're not all that fervent, but um, they, they carry the banner of, and the profession of faith. Many evangelistic services are, are secondarily focused in that direction. You know, I mean, we've, we've all probably been part of a service in which um, there is a, a, a urge to, for people to come to Christ, to be saved. And if they aren't, then there's a secondary call to Christians to move to a more devoted relationship um, with Jesus Christ that will be evidenced by works. Um, as if those two things have different birthplaces. As if you can actually have one without the other, such as salvation apart from total devotion. Now, now there's many Christians who, you know, I understand, don't have a full understanding of salvation and, and the, that, that, salva that salvation in of itself and the Christian life is progressive and that we grow and that, um, that we will grow in a greater and a deeper understanding and that later in life um, there will be things that God will have for you that He didn't have earlier in life as doors open and you become more like Christ. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying this morning that that doesn't happen or that that shouldn't happen or that's not the norm. That's actually the exact norm. That's exactly what should happen. I'm only arguing that that happens the same way um, as salvation happens. That that which is required of you at your new birth, at being born again, that which the gospel requires um, at, at salvation is, as it, is actually the same thing that God requires and the gospel requires of the saved all throughout his Christian life. That there isn't two different forms of that. There's not, a, there's not inherently a way of salvation that you come to Christ like this and then later on you reach a new tier of Christianity as you finally then devote yourself and everything that you are to the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And that's exactly what Jesus argues here. Jesus calls the people and His disciples to Himself and immediately charges them with these words. Quote, If anyone wishes to come after Me... What does he mean? Is he talking about the higher life of Christianity? Um, is there a difference between believing in Jesus and following after Jesus? And again, the answer I'm going to argue is no. So what does he mean? What does it mean to follow Jesus? What does it mean? First, to follow Jesus is simply to be saved. Um, the salvation that we experience initially is part of this follow me. He could rightly say to the unconverted, follow me. And he could rightly say to the converted, follow me. Um, the same way that you came into Christ is the same way that he leads you as um, one of his children. And it gives birth to and must precede the faithful Christian walk. There is no substantial difference between believing in Jesus and following Jesus. They are essentially the same. 
Um, Mark chapter 10 and verse number 17, you'll um, read a, a similar account. Uh, Mark chapter number 10, just a couple pages over, verse number 17. This is what you read. Now, as he was going out on the road, one came running, knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? So that's the question. What, what, what do I do to be saved? What does the gospel require of me? What does God require of me? So Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and your mother. And he answered and said to him, Teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. Then Jesus, looking at him, loved him. Man, I love that. Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, One thing you lack. Go your way, sell whatever you have, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, take up the cross, and follow me. But he was sad at his word, at this word, and went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Mark chapter 10, verse 17, now he was going out on the road. One came running, knelt before him, and asked, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He wasn't introducing him to a higher way of Christianity or Judaism. He was introducing him to Christianity 101. He was introducing him to what it requires, what Christ requires of any man that would come unto him. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, do this one thing, come and follow me. And then in verse number, 10, or verse number 23, Jesus looks around and makes a statement. How hard is it for those who have riches to enter into the kingdom of God? This is kind of implications following um, the passage that we just read. So Jesus looks around and he says, How hard is it for those who have riches to enter into the kingdom of God? And the disciples were astonished at his words. But Jesus answered again and said to them, Children, how hard is it for those who trust in riches to enter into the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of, he of God. And they were greatly astonished, saying among themselves, Then who can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, When it is impossible with men, but not with God. For with God all things are possible. And then Peter began to say to him, See, we have left all and followed you. So Jesus answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, there is uh, no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake and the gospel's who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. So he carries on in that portion of Scripture with the conclusion in verse 26. They're astonished. And they say, if this is what you require of a man, then who in the world can be saved? And Jesus says, wait a minute. <laughs> With you it's impossible. With me it is more than possible. With God it's more than possible. So Peter then responds, and in a sense he says, um, with us it is too. Uh, verse 28, and Peter looks at him, he's like, we've done all that, Lord. We've left everything and followed you. I know it's hard, Lord, but um, I'm sure it's impossible after you look at all those who follow you. Interestingly, Jesus doesn't really rebuke him, but further expounds and ends with this. And in the age to come, eternal life. Jesus looks at them and says, your reward here, if you follow me, take up your cross, die daily, is that you get his bride here, you get a family here, and in the age to come, you get eternal life. Those that follow me get life, and those that don't get, that don't get me do not get eternal life. 
If you were to turn over to Luke, chapter number 9, you would read a um, similar account. This is the way Jesus preached the gospel. Uh, Luke chapter uh, 9 and verse uh, 61. And another one also said, Lord, I will follow you, but let me first go and bid them farewell who are at my house. But Jesus said to them, no one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Essentially, he is saying, Lord, I will follow you, but let me do something first. Lord, I will follow you, but enter in. I need to go back. I need to take care of. Um, let me take care of this thing first. And he was giving somewhat of that exact point that we were trying to make earlier. That some people say, I will follow. I will, I will, uh, I will receive Jesus today and I will follow him later. Jesus says, no. If you won't follow me today, you will not follow me later. Jesus says, no, there is no one that believes on me now and serves me later. There's not a sow my wild oats mentality now and get serious later. It's all now. The urgency to come, the urgency to believe, the urgency to serve, the urgency to die, the urgency to take up your cross, the urgency to suffer, the urgency to live is now or it's never is what he's arguing. This, of course, becomes so evident to us as we apply it to um, young people. Right? Because we were young once. Um, but dare I say that this could also be very true of us today as even adults. Why? Because the habits you sow in the younger years most often mark us as an adult. I know because I'm, I'm somewhat haunted um, by habits that I sowed as a young man. Habits that seemingly had little effect, or had little effect on me because I had little responsibility and little um, authority over me. At that time, as a young man, um, I created and cultivated habits that I carried into marriage, I carried into family, I carried into a career, I carried into a church, and, and you begin to see the consequences of those poor choices. It changes the way you raise your children, because while you can't save them, you can train them. And you begin to see all the things that you carry into life because of all the things that you sow um, earlier on. And that's somewhat what um, Jesus is arguing here. You can't change yourself over a period of time. You can't believe on him today and think that you can change yourself later. That's what, all, that's what uh, young people, young adults, young families um, love to think. That, that I can serve and I can sow my wild oats today. I can, I can attach a profession of faith and I can be Christian today, but not actually be a Christian until later on. Not realizing that later on, whenever the, the habits are formed and, and the, the, the character is sown, that there will, won't be a desire uh, later on. That if Christ is calling you today, um, then you need to come today. Because the fact is that if you don't see the necessity of following Christ today, it's more evident that we don't see the necessity of following Christ at all. We must drive home to ourselves and drive home to our children the necessity of serving and honoring Christ, not tomorrow and not next week and not in the future, but today. And by urging them and urging ourselves, Christ urges us to serve Him today, it will secure the tomorrow. By cultivating godly character and godly characteristics and godly habits today, you secure the future for your children. Don't focus on the plan for next week and the week after that thinking that I'll get through today and I'll start tomorrow. Tomorrow never comes. I can go ahead and tell you that. You know? That tomorrow if you plan on reading your Bible or tomorrow you really plan on becoming fervent or tomorrow you plan on getting up earlier but today you're going to sleep in. When these habits have been formed in you for as long as they have, tomorrow never comes. And tomorrow, you keep saying tomorrow. And I'll get to it next week and I'll do it next year. I fell off my Bible plan and you know, this year and I, I'll begin again next year. And you begin to wait. 
And the truth is, is that next year never comes. Tomorrow is never there. Next week is always just a figment of your imagination and you're clinging to false hope. Christ calls all of us today to follow Him today. To believe on Him today. To be a Christian today is to follow today. That if there's something that needs to be done today, it needs to be done today. Because tomorrow never comes. It is incumbent upon us to cultivate a spirit of meekness and humility and submissiveness um, today. John chapter 8 and verse number 12, Jesus says, um, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light. Again, just to emphasize the fact that following Jesus is coming to Jesus. Um, that, that it is eternal life. That whenever he stands up and he preaches, take up your cross and follow me. Um, he is preaching a message to unbelievers and even the unconverted and all people around of what it takes to be a Christian, not what it takes, not what is even required of a Christian that is saved. That he, that Jesus Christ is the light of the world, and he who follows me, he says in John, um, does not walk in darkness. But why? Because he has the light to believe in Jesus and to follow after Jesus is essentially the same thing. There's no biblical distinction between being a Christian and being a disciple. To become a Christian and to, to, to become a new convert and to be in Christ is to be a disciple. It is to be a learner. And that which is required of us as Christians is the gateway into being a Christian. Number two, to follow after Christ is to have a readiness of heart to participate in the sufferings of Christ. That's what he goes on to say. Um... You know, in Mark chapter number 8, he goes on to speak of taking up a cross, of participating in the sufferings of Christ. I say it that way because uh, the readiness of heart, because you'll not always have to suffer. But you should always have, I should always have a readiness of suffering in my heart. Pastors should be ready to preach in season and out of season. Christians should be ready to give a defense of the faith, a reason for the hope that is in them. And to uh, us, Christians, average church members, the, norm, the normal Christian must be ready to embrace the grand calling of suffering. This is your call. This is my call. You can't become a Christian. You can't be a Christian and uh, think that I'm going to be one of those Christians that opts out of suffering. Jesus could not opt out of suffering. The disciples, the apostles could not opt out of suffering. Um, the New Testament Christians who wrote the epistles and the churches could not opt out of suffering. And neither can we. This is our calling. Why? For Christ's sake is what the text tells us. Philippians 1.29 says, For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake. 1 Timothy 4.10 says, For to this end we both labor and suffer reproach, because we trust, we believe, in the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of those who believe. So to this end, we labor and suffer reproach. Why? Because we believe. We are Christians. Therefore, we suffer and bear reproach and labor and serve and honor Christ. Why? Because this is who we are. Simply because we believe. Believing inevitably leads to suffering. It may not be imminent, for you, It may not be imminent for me, but it is inevitable. And again, when we talk of the term suffering, we don't talk of a general suffering. I mean, it's not pious or godly to suffer just for suffering's sake. Especially not to suffer, Peter argues, for doing evil. We're not speaking of a simple asceticism here. There's no inherent virtue in you or me uh, mutilating ourselves or depriving ourselves. It can actually, um, oftentimes that can be just a form of pride. 
Um, I read of a monk this week who did that exact same thing in the third or fourth century. Um, desired to be pious and godly. So what did he do? He sold everything that he had. He went off into a desert and he deprived himself of water, food, and about everything that he could find only to find that the problem wasn't in those things. It was in himself. He carried his heart into the desert with him. Um, with the knowledge that he had, he came to Christ. He ended up coming back and um, going back to Rome um, because he understood that true piety and true godliness was suffering for Christ's sake in the arena of an ungodly and a dark world. Um, and the, the ultimate conclusion was is that I thought that I could honor and work and find my way to God um, through these uh, through these selfish through these means of um, of self mutilation and deprecation, only to find out that um, that was selfish and arrogant and prideful um, to think that um, I could build a tower higher than Babel when they couldn't find him and I could. Um, through my own aestheticism and through my own suffering and through my own self-mutilation, only to suffer for Christ's sake as he comes back to Rome. Um, And it was a Christianized Rome. It was 3rd or 4th century. Constantine was in charge and uh, this month. But when he came back, he found a very Christianized darkness, uh, much like we would find in Christianity today. Um, he, the, the arena was still up and, and, and operating. It wasn't quite like it was in Jesus' day. All the debauchery and, um, and, and different things happening within the, the uh, Colosseums, as it were. Um, but they were still operating. Men would still fight to their deaths. Um, upon his first look, he looked down into the um, arenas and he was appalled. He was appalled at what quote-unquote Christians were doing. He jumped in and he tried to stop it. Um, they wouldn't stop. And uh, people chanted, uh, many of whom would have claimed to be Christians, chanted for them to kill him. Um, they began to fight again. Eventually, he wouldn't get out of the way. He got back in, and they beheaded him. Um, at that moment, the entirety of the silent, uh, the crowd silenced. And um, after that day, the Colosseum ceased to exist in Rome. Um, why? Because of the suffering of this one man. Why? Because this man um, saw the moral atrocity that was happening to the image bearers of God such that he... Um, it provoked him to stand in the gap for those who could not or who would not stand Um, and by virtue of his suffering by leaving the desert his asceticism and his self-deprecation and his depriving himself instead of working his way to heaven and he ends up doing more with his death than he ever would have accomplished with his life some of us will never know um, what we mean to the world and what we mean to Christ and what we can accomplish um, until after we've given up all that we have to give I mean, that was the case for this man. The suffering of, spoken of here is to embrace. Um, again, not a simple asceticism, not a self-deprecation, not a self-mutilation, but it's to embrace the sufferings involved in being a servant of Jesus Christ. Why? Jesus argues that in the Christian life, not only must the king suffer, but as the king goes, so goes the kingdom. That the kingdom was not only birthed through suffering, but it will continue to be wrought and grow through suffering. You now fellowship, I fellowship, we fellowship with God in sufferings for Christ's sake. This is what the Scriptures teaches us. Not to accomplish salvation as Christ did for us, but to do the propagations of the sufferings of Christ. How did and how does God propagate the gospel throughout generations? At least what's one of the many means that He uses. One of the primary ways that He does so is through the sufferings of His people. The gospel is flourishing. I guarantee you, you go over to China and you go over to Africa and you go over to Asia and these other, all of these places um, which Christianity is flourishing. You know? You come to, to America and you wonder why in the world that it's on the downward slope. It's on, uh, it's degrading away the moral decay of our society. Um, 
Um, why? Because the lid of the law and the gospel has been taken off. And now um, um, we see the ramifications of that. But in places where men are suffering for the gospel's sake, you see the propagation of the church at undeniable and immeasurable speeds that you don't see here in Christianity. Why? Um, because the gospel calls us to do things that normally men would not do and suffer for things that average men would never. But before you do that, we're introduced here to a phrase that I think is unparalleled in the Gospels in some sense. That before you ever get there, you first must get here. Uh, verse number uh, 34. Whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Before the cross is ever carried, you see a phrase there. Um, that is actually just one word in the original, and it's uh, translated deny himself. Deny himself. It's, um, it's such a convicting word. It is such a hammer to the heart when Jesus reaches in and calls you um, to do this. But at the same time, it's such a balm to the soul, such a medicine to the heart. <laughs> When he rushes in after, picks up the pieces, and gives new life. To deny here, um, it means to affirm that one has no acquaintance or connection with someone. It means to forget oneself. It means to lose sight of oneself. It means to lose sight of one's own self-interest. But this is what the gospel demands of you. That if you're going to follow me, Jesus says... You must deny yourself. It relates primarily to people um, or to a person. And more so than it speaks of denying some, something. Okay? I need for you to understand that. Um, it's not speaking of self-denial in a material sense. For example, we might say this past week that we practiced self-denial because we denied that uh, second dessert upon the table or we denied, abstained from dessert altogether. All you know, um, we didn't eat any fast food this week, or we um, didn't indulge in that thing. You know, we might take a food fast or call it and call it self-denial. And in some sense, that's that's exactly true. Um, but that's not the idea that Jesus is teaching here. To get the idea, the word here is used with Peter's denial of Jesus. In Luke chapter 22 and verse 56, we read, this word, we, we, we read these words. And a certain servant girl, seeing him, so, so Jesus is upon his death. He's about to give his life on Calvary. Uh, many men have abandoned him. Peter is following off afar. Um, he's, he's watching them take him, and there's a certain servant girl, it says. Um, it sees him, and he, as he sat by the fire, looked intently at him and said, This man was also with him. So here's the argument. The servant girl looks and is like, oh, there's Peter. Uh, like, I don't know his name, but he's, he's with him. You need to take him too. Um, if you're taking Jesus, this guy was with him. What did uh, Peter do? He denied him, the text says. The exact same word, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And after a little while, another saw him and said, You are also with him. Or you, are, you also are of them. So, so, so you go a little bit down the story and what happened to somebody else? You remember the great prophecy that Jesus said, Peter, you're going to deny me three times before the cock crows. 
Peter said, what do you say? Like, never, Lord, I would never do that. Um, so, so the woman says, I do not, he looks at the woman and he says, I, I do not know him. Uh, another man comes and he says, you're also of them. Peter says, man, I am not. Then about an hour had passed after confidently affirmed saying, uh, surely this fellow also was with him for he is also a Galilean. But Peter said, what, quote, man, I do not know what you are saying. Immediately while he was speaking, the rooster crowed. In that context, Peter totally, 100%, dissociates himself from Christ. It gives the idea of completely severing a relationship. In 2 Timothy 2.13, the word is used as well. And God is the subject. And uh, Paul writes these words. If we are faithless, remember, he is faithful. He remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. Deny him, the implication is to deny himself would mean that contrary to his own nature. God cannot deny himself. He cannot dissociate himself from himself in the sense of his substance. He ceases then to be God. Here the verb tense points toward the subject in Mark chapter 8 of the denial. The subject is ourselves. It speaks of one being guided by self-interest who surrenders control of one's own destiny, his own life. What Jesus calls for here is a radical abandonment of one's own identity, one's own self-determination, one's own selfishness, one, the, 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 the thing that makes you you. He, he demands you to give that up and follow Him. It's a call to join the march to the place of the execution if needed. Such self-denial is on a different level altogether from simply giving up chocolate for Lent. It's not the denial of something to yourself, but it is the denial of self altogether. It's a repudiation of oneself, of all effort in establishing me as the center of the world and the center of my own universe. It could be accurately translated here. Whoever does not renounce himself cannot follow me. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the term um, is used um, in Isaiah 31.7. And it's translated in the King James translation. It's cast away. And it goes like this. For in that day every man shall cast away his idols of silver and his idols of gold, which your own hands have made unto you for a sin. The ideal of the word is this. It's, you get the idea there that in that day, every man will cast away his idols of silver, his idols of gold, which his own hands made for a sin. It gives this idea of repentance. It gives this idea of casting something off, of coming to the conclusion that you were wrong and that everything about it was wrong and that the idols are, are, are not idols at all and I must serve the true and the living God. Therefore, I must cast this thing away. But here it's not a thing. Here it's a people. It's a person. It's me. It's me. It's me. The gospel requires an abandon, for me to abandon me. So what in the world does that look like? Paul gives us a great illustration in his own life in Philippians chapter 3 and verse number 4 where he says these words, Though I might also have confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I'm more so. Why, Paul? Because I was circumcised the eighth day. Of the stock of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning righteousness which is in the law, blameless. That was me. But what things were gained to me, 
These I have counted loss. I deny, he's saying. Everything that, 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 that preceded there, everything that I was, everything that I worked for, everything that I labored, everything that I loved, everything that I clung to, everything that I gave my life to, um, I, I, everything that was gained to me, everything that I counted of value and worth and wrapped my identity up in, whenever I came to Christ, when He was before me, I looked at that and I looked at this and I counted it all as loss. I weighed them on the scales. I balanced them out. And the scales were balanced for Jesus Christ every single time. He always weighed more. He was always greater to the point to where I can actually say that this over here was nothing. You count it all up. Put all the worlds and all the, the lakes and all the mountains and all the angels and all the valleys and all the accomplishments that I ever did and you put them on the scale, Christ is always and He will always win the day. That's what Paul's saying. Everything that I did, everything that I was, it meant nothing outside of Christ. And that's what he goes on to say. He says, I deny all of that. Why? Because all of that was out of Christ. I didn't do it for Him. I did it for me. So he goes on and he says, Yet I indeed count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ, and be found in Him, not having mine own righteousness which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is by God, or from God by faith, that I may know Him, and the power of His resurrection, and the fellowship of His sufferings, being conformed to His death, if by any means I may attain to the, righteous, the resurrection from the dead. Paul says that, that all of those things were nothing. It's, rem, it's reminiscent of the Gospels and the parable of the, uh, the, the, the man who, for the joy that was set before him, so, sold everything that he had to buy a field with a treasure in it. Why? Because he wanted the treasure. The treasure was valuable. The treasure was, uh, it was, it was, it was worthwhile. It was worth more than everything that, that he owned. It was worth everything. It, was, it, was, it, it outweighed it every day. So much that with joy, the text says, he laid it all aside. And that's part of it too. That whenever we talk about come, and Jesus says, come, follow me, take up your cross. He's not asking you to begrudgedly let things go. He's laying himself before you. As Paul lays himself before you in such a way that you would see the glories and the majesties and the sufferings and the righteousness and the accolades and the character and the nature and the godliness and the purity and the holiness of the Christ so much so that the scales would not even be a competition. Every single time Christ outweighs those. There's no doubt that Paul was well considered among the religious elite and the pagans of the day. He gives his resume. It's amazing. It is amazing. It's enough to get anyone into a high spot in the Sanhedrin with no difficulty at all. Paul spent his life pursuing righteousness of his own, and it was glorious according to the world's perspective. It was glorious according to Israel's um, criteria. It was enough to move you up the ladder. It was enough to receive wards and to get accolades. It wasn't just a nominal pagan life that he was leading. It wasn't just a nominal religious life he's leaving here. Um, it was something to be uh, esteemed. It was something from a natural worldly perspective to even aspire after. I can't imagine how many little boys and how many little, little ones that their parents were saying, man, you should be more like Paul or you should be more like Saul. Like, look at his, his devotion. Look at his diligence. Look at all of his accolades. I mean, books are going to be written about this man. You know? You know what Paul does? Paul says, I don't want anything to do with that anymore. 
I want nothing. Like, that means nothing to me. Because all of that um, was for myself. It's loss, is what he says. The term loss also, it, it doesn't even give the, the, it gives more than just a sense of neutrality. It's not just saying that it didn't mean anything. It actually gives the idea of damage through violence. God was doing damage. So not only are you not profiting spiritually, but you're causing spiritual damage is what Paul says. Like I was doing damage to the church of God. I was doing damage to the cause of Christ. I was doing damage by walking my own way and building my own righteousness. Paul says in Romans um, that that was the case in other places. And that's true for us as well, you know? Like it's not just, you're not, you're not neutral. You say, I don't want to serve and honor Christ today. You're like, it doesn't matter. It matters. No man lives to himself. No man dies to himself. Every man and woman, child is created in the image of God and will stand before Him one day. And it won't be, you know, like I didn't serve Jesus, but I didn't kind of give myself to the world either. You know, like I should get a pass for that, right? And the answer is no. The answer is no. The overwhelming testimony of Scripture and the Gospels and the New Testament is that if you are not for Him, you are against Him. If you are not serving Christ, you are serving Satan. And there is no... Uh, if you're not building kingdom, you're tearing it down. That's the idea. Paul says that all those things were lost. They were destruction. And I was doing damage and violence. Thus, he renunciates those. Why? Because he recognizes that his entire past life wasn't just worthless. It was a, a renunciation of God and Christ Himself. That it was total rebellion as he stood against God in the former life. That not only was he not serving and honoring Christ, but everything that he was stood in opposition to everything that God in Christ was. That the loveliness of Christ he stood in opposition of. The purity of Christ he stood in opposition of. It's more than just, like I think I want to serve Christ today and I'm going to go home and I'm not going to, 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 to build up kingdom. I'm not going to give myself over to Christ, but I'm not harming anybody, so leave me alone. That, that is not true. There is no truth to that at all. Um, there is no neutrality in the Scriptures. And Paul illustrates that. Jesus illustrates that here. Paul gives us that. That if you are not with Him, you are against Him. Thus you must be ready when you see the glories and the majesties and the beauties of beauty and the holiness and the glories of Christ. Um, in His sufferings, you must be ready to say, That's, I'm ready to follow Him. John Calvin says, uh, in the Christian world, we are prepared to be reduced to nothing so that, may God may, so that God may live and reign in us. And that is true. What does that look like now, though? And don't worry, I'm not going to get to the whole passage. This is just the introduction uh, this week. Um, what does that look like now? You say, what does that look like for me? Can I tell you that it may look like a lot of things? So that doesn't help. I know, right? Why? Because it looked like a lot of things in those days. Why? Because the human heart is vast with its idols. And they take different form depending upon each person and their greatest loves. Remember the rich man that we read about earlier in Luke? What did Jesus require of him? He required him to sell everything that he had. Take up his cross and follow him. Now, question would arise, is there salvation in expression of poverty? And the answer is no. Not at all. Does he require this of every man? And the answer is no. Not at all. He only requires it of those men and women who that thing is the ultimate expression of themselves. 
for self. He then requires them to deny it. This was his self-denial. Deny yourself, Jesus is saying there to that man. That was the self that he was to abandon. The love of riches and the love of money. And that's why he walks away sad. Right? In Luke 10, verse 25, you read the story of a good Samaritan. Um, and I think most of us probably remember that. So many people look at that story and they boil it down to just mere moral teaching. You know, this is what morality looks like and this is what the love of Jesus looks like. And like I agree to that. But I don't think that either of those things are the purpose of the passage. And the purpose is to teach you and I to teach that man what he must do to inherit eternal life. That's actually the question that the lawyer asks. Verse 25, he says, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said, um, Jesus looks at him and says, What do you think? He said, Love God and love your neighbor. And Jesus looks and says, "That's I'm paraphrasing. It's, you're exactly right. Um, and he follows it by, Okay, go do that. Um, the text says, The man seeking to justify himself asks the question, And who is my neighbor? So Jesus gives him the most extreme example of love that he could think of, I think, from a natural perspective. I mean, he talks about a guy who is just expresses love to this abandoned man when no one else could and pretty much gives him everything that he is, his time, his talent, his this or that, his money. And he says whenever he gets there, even if, like, if you need more, I'll come back and I'll give you more. I'll take care of them. Like he just, to a total stranger. It just gives him this extreme amount of love, of example to show this man um, what love looks like. And then what does he say? Same thing he said previous. Okay, now go. Do thou likewise. Jesus sets the bar. He tries to get the guy to understand the righteousness that it requires to enter into the kingdom of heaven. But he doesn't require him to sell everything that he owned, does he? Why didn't he tell him to sell everything that he owned? Why didn't he tell him that if you're going to follow me, this is what you must give up? Why? Because this guy was prideful. He was arrogant with a bent to prove that he had what it took to keep the law. So what does Jesus do? He gives him the gospel in such a way that to show him that he is not what he thinks that he is. I mean, ultimately, I think the conclusion is, is Jesus gets to the end of the story. He's like, have you ever loved like this? Have you ever loved like this? If not, go do it. But also know this, that when you do do it, it's not a one-time deal. Like this love is required of you all the time, everywhere, at all times. That this is the righteousness that it takes to exceed that righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, that you may enter in and see the kingdom of heaven. He, he, he gives the gospel in such a way, you know, that would have been a perfect time for Jesus. You know, multiple times throughout the Gospels to say, like, how does a man be saved? Well, let me take you through the Romans road and let's pray a prayer and let's do this and let's do that. He doesn't do that, though. He doesn't do that. He doesn't. Why? Because sometimes that's what men want. Um, they want something that they can do. They want something that they can go through. They want some some channel to operate through. They want some work that they can um, walk away with to um, to give them assurance that they are in Christ. When when God demands so much more than just a simple action, um, he, he he demands total denial of self. So so he puts this picture before this this man of a good Samaritan to show him um, exactly um, who he is before Christ. Jesus, all throughout the gospel, simply meets people where they are and he implores them to come face to face with themselves. Why? Because that's who you have to deny. That's who I have to deny. Not me. You can't look at me and say, I know I'm a bad guy, but not 
that I'm better than He is. I don't have the right to, to say, hey, I'm following Jesus more than that guy. I mean, look at his kids and look at mine. Surely between the two of us, I'm the one that's getting in. Like, it doesn't work like that. That's not how it works. You're not getting into heaven. I'm not getting into heaven because we've denounced um, anything like satanic worship or drunkenness or strip bars or rough parts of town. Like, we don't get into heaven because we've denounced a certain sins in the Bible and, self and, and are self proclaimed keepers of the law. Like we don't get to get to heaven because we came to church 52 uh, Sundays this past year or we served in, in different capacities. Like We don't get to become a follower of Jesus by, by denouncing um, this thing or that person or this place because these things are darkness and that person's ungodly. And I get home and I, and I, and I think I did something today because I denounced this and I denounced that. And all that that is, is is a form of legalism that gives you some sense of false assurance that because you did something today, you're in the kingdom. Like there's no denunciation of this person and that person or this thing and that thing. Jesus Christ uh, the, the demands for us to, in the, to, to, to deny ourselves. To deny our, so what could it look like today? What could it look like for you? It could simply look like you. It could just look like me. That's what it looks like. That's the danger. It can look like a self-aggrandizing, pompous lover of self who's building business after business off of the back of, uh, of, of immorality. Or it could look like the Apostle Paul before his conversion. A religious zealot willing to give anything for the name of who he thought Yahweh was. A man of moral character and religious zeal with a love for his country and a love for God. It could look like any one of us. It could look like a homeschool mom who finds her identity in how much her children know and can do. Who finds her identity in self of, and, 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 and success and sense of self-worth and the level of success of her children, um, what their ACT scores will be and what their college acceptance is. Then she'll know she meant something. Not realizing that she already means something to Christ. It could look like a Christian mom that doesn't see the worth or value in anything that she does at all. Desires to be other places because the grass is green around in the world. Her worth and value are wrapped up in accomplishments that others can see, and if she can't do those, then she's not doing anything. It can look like a Christian dad or a husband who finds his identity, value, and worth in his career. I mean, if he's not working, he's nothing then. He's useless and no value to God. So he works endlessly and tirelessly until his death. He feels best about himself when he's there. It could look like a pastor who's constantly preaching for the accolades of men. It could look like a pastor who can't be happy unless the church is growing numerically. Everyone is happy and pleased. It might be evident in the fact that when they're not there, or when things don't go his way, all of his joy, his happiness, his peace and contentment is ripped away. Why? Because his self-worth is wrapped up in what he perceives to be success. What does he need to do? What does she need to do? We need to deny ourselves. What does that look like? Only you. It looks like you. Only He can tell you what that is as He stands before Christ. Maybe it means He needs to quit because ministry has become an idol. Maybe He simply needs to be transformed by the renewing of His mind as He moves forward. Either way, He must deny Himself. The workaholic must deny Himself. How? By finding another job? Maybe. By controlling his hours? Probably. 
the homeschooling mom, what must she do? She, she needs to find joy in Jesus as she pursues her children and kill the thought that if her children don't excel as well as others, she's worthless because that's just not simply true. She needs to find worth. He needs to find worth. The pastor needs to find worth. Um, the workaholic needs to find worth and value and identity in Christ and recognize that outside of Him, and if He's not the purpose, and if He's not the reason, um, then all of that is meaningless in some sense of the, the word. At least meaningless one day as you stand before God. And I stand before God. And I lay out all the things that I did. And I did them for myself. No one else knows it. No one else sees it. But the great omniscient one who stands before us today knows the secrets of every man's heart. That's the common thread with all these people. They're all working for worth and value and it's evident by the waxing and the waning of their affections when they do or don't get what they intended to get. You have to come face to face today with yourself and he or she must be renounced. He's a lover of self. He's a boastful man. He's a prideful man. He must be denied. You must stop trying to save yourself. You must pick up your cross. You must be ready to die for Jesus. And it must be the overflowing joy of your heart. Self-denial is the only pathway to picking up a cross. Why else would you? Other than to glory in yourself that others may see how pious you are. How monkish we truly are. Listen, there's nothing pious about standing up and preaching for 30 years for the glory of man. There's nothing godly or pious about that at all. There's nothing pious about being part of a church and giving yourself over in service to the people pat yourself on the back and things like that. Um, all that's doing is sealing your condemnation and greater wrath. Give yourself to Jesus today. Deny yourself and take up your cross and follow Him. Self-denial is the only pathway to truly taking up the cross for His sake. He must pick up His cross. Listen. The cross is significant because He's not speaking of life's burdens. Oftentimes we talk about that, Right? Interestingly enough, at this point, and when he says that the follower not only um, denies himself, but he takes up his cross, the, term, the, 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 the theology of the cross is not known yet. Um, we look back and we think that they should have understood that, but Jesus hadn't died on a cross yet. Their theology is not established. He's asking them to do something that they're aware of, but it's, 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 it's despicable in their own minds. Why? Because they understand a Roman cross. They don't understand the theology of the cross yet and what Christ came to do and what it means for us as our redemption. Um, all they know that it's a bloody tool. Um, a bloody tool that, 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 that leads to death. It always leads to death. Practically 100% of the time that when you go upon a cross, you're dying. Jesus here is demanding that they die. First, you must deny yourself and then be ready to die. Be ready to die. Uh, bon, Dietrich Bonhoeffer um, is known for these words. When God calls a man, He bids him come and die. That's the Christian life. Jesus, in all of His honesty and truth and this and that, um, He just lays it out there for them. And he says, when I call a man, I bid him come and die. Be ready. In 1839, um, there was a missionary who went to the New Hebrides Islands. His name was John Patton. Uh, prior to that, um, there was a, a group of missionaries, a couple, a couple men, I believe, um, went to the New Hebrides Islands, and they were full of cannibals. These men jumped off the boat, and they were immediately clubbed to death and probably eaten. Um, John Patton gets a burden to go to the New Hebrides Islands for these men. Man, just, God just burdened his heart. And um, if Christ is king, if Christ has the crown, and he's the king of all the earth, and all authority is given to him in heaven and earth, therefore we must go. Uh, cannibals don't stand in his way. Um, th these men are created in the image of God, and they deserve the gospel. 
But as happens with missionaries oftentimes, such as William Carey as well, there's often men who stand in the way and in the gap. Why? Because they're, they're worried about them, and rightfully so. But there was one man in particular, John Patton is quoted with this saying, um, who, who tried to deter him from going. He said, The people of the New Hebrides Islands need to hear the gospel. Amongst many who saw to deter me was one old dear Christian man whose crowning argument was always the cannibals. You'll be eaten by the cannibals. The last I replied, Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years now and your own prospects soon to be laid in the grave there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus Christ, it will make no difference to me whether I am eaten by cannibals or by worms. And that great day, my resurrection body will rise just as fair as yours in the likeness of our Redeemer. We think the problem of the world is that we, you know, I think one of the problems is we think too highly of ourselves. Actually, I think that the problem of the world is that we think too highly of ourselves, but it's not that we think too highly of ourselves, but often that we don't think high enough. And don't discount me before I explain what I'm talking about here. Some of us today listen to a sermon like that, and you think, man, that's a harsh thing to ask you, to abandon yourself and everything that you are. But I beg you to understand that it's not. Remember in Luke with the rich man when Jesus says, um, where the text says that Jesus loved him by telling him to sell everything? It was the most loving thing that the Lord could do to tell him to give everything up, to sell all that he had, to denounce himself, and to follow Jesus. It was love to tell him to come face to face with himself and God. Why? Because he's not asking him to deny himself in totality, but he, that which he thought of himself. He was asking him, he begged him to stop believing the lies. Um, he told him, he begged him to repent of the lies and to submit to the, the truth concerning himself and that, what, that which God requires of us. That's the thinking that saves you. Right? That's what he means when he says, lose your life and you'll save it and save your life and you'll lose it. Again, the problem is not that we think too highly of ourselves. It's that we think too many great lies about ourselves or we create our own uh, destiny concerning ourselves. We don't think high enough. We don't think uh, naturally think of ourselves as God created us, as instruments and vessels of honor for His glory. We don't think of ourselves as image bearers of God created uh, for His purposes alone. We don't think of ourselves with infinite worth and value simply because we are and we reflect His glory. This is why we are sad. This is why we are incomplete. This is why we are unsatisfied. This is why we are discontent. Because we do not see us as God sees us and intends for us to be and desires for us to be as instruments of His glory. And I beg you today to raise your thinking to that place. To raise it to the place of the cross. To understand what Jesus Christ came to do. Not because, uh, and not, not, not to be harsh and offensive. Because we're all just so lovable. And you're asking me to abandon that. Um, but to recognize that I, I love you dearly. Um, and that's why I say what I say. And that's why God preserves the word for us today. Why? Because we think of ourselves too lowly. We think of ourselves with too much glory. We do have a high sense of self-worth. And it's inappropriate. We need to refocus our sense of self-worth to Christ and understand that in Him and in Him alone are we only ever worth anything for the glory of God and for the upbuilding of the kingdom. When you do it for the glory of God according to His design, you have dignity and worth and value because your identity is in Him. 
And I think it's Ephesians chapter 5 that says, um, no adulterers, no murderers, no this, no that will enter into the kingdom of heaven. They will not. Um, but those who are in Him will. Um, those who are in Him will. They have that great inheritance. So when we ask you to abandon, when we beg and implore, when Jesus looks and He loves you today, and He loves me today, and He, and he requires of us to follow Him, to, 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 to denounce ourselves, to, to, to totally dissociate ourselves from who we are and what we desire and pursuing our own righteousness is the most loving thing that God Himself could do. Why? To reveal to you Himself the glories of Christ, the sacrifice upon the cross, so that you would see the actual reason and the purpose for which you were created to be an instrument for His glory. And at that moment, when you take up your cross... You understand that the sufferings of Christ are glorious and that sometimes you can be like a third or fourth century monk and um, not only by your life but also by your death you can have an insurmountable impact and influence in this world. Why? Because you saw the glories of Christ and that not only were they worth living for but they were worth dying for. Um, and then he says, and follow me. Take up your cross and follow me. Is there a distinction between believing and living the Christian life? And the answer is no. You know, if you were to go to uh, Luke chapter 9, you don't need to turn there. Verse 23, it's the parallel passage of Luke. He says these words, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross, quote, daily. Daily. That when you're birthed in this flame, this is the power in which you live. But the same thing that Jesus Christ requires of those who come to him by faith through repentance and denial of self and total and appropriation of the King of kings and the Lord of lords and He who has all authority in heaven and on earth just asks you daily to keep doing the same thing. Romans 8 and verse number 13. You read these words and they should um, sound familiar in your hearing. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if you live by the Spirit, you put to death the deeds of the body you will live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. You get that? Those who follow me are the sons of God. And in Mark chapter 8, what did he say? If you lose your life, you'll save it. If you save your life, you'll lose it. Paul just expounds upon that. And he says, if you live according to the flesh, you'll die. But if you live by the Spirit and you put to death the deeds of the body, if you deny yourself, you'll live. You'll live. But today, if you're outside of Christ, there's a reason you're outside of Christ because you're clinging to yourself in some sort of sin. I beg you today to see the value and the majesty and the glory of Christ so much that for the joy that is set before you, you sell all that you have, you buy the field for the treasure in it, and you do it with joy in your hearts and your souls. You know? And if you do that, you learn a great, a great tool. You have a great tool, and you learn a great principle which will carry with you the rest of your life as you continually follow Him. And Paul and Jesus and Peter and the Spirit of God stands up today and says, you know, um, you'll be doing this all your life. And that's the truth, isn't it? Like just because you come to faith in Christ doesn't mean that you're perfect and you don't do anything wrong. But the life, the, the salvation is the salvation of faith and repentance. And you know what the Christian life is? It's a life of faith and repentance. That um, it worries me. It worries me whenever I sit down with people and it worries myself sometimes and my own self. You know, and I ask them questions like, um, you know, what sin are you struggling with? And they tell me, none. Either you're lying or you're deceived, you know? Because as Christians, we are all in the midst of a dark and a wicked world that provokes our inner self, our old man, um, and we are subject and prone to 
certain things that need to be daily mortified, daily murdered, daily killed. Um, and that's the nature of the Christian life. And you say, man, that sounds rough. That sounds harsh. That sounds difficult. That sounds gory. I know. I know. I know. You couldn't do it unless you found Jesus on the other side. That's the glory, right? Paul tells us that he counted all those things for loss and he continues to die daily. Why? Because in those things, he enters into the fellowship of his sufferings. He knows him in a greater fashion and he meets him there. I promise you, that if you die today daily, if you die today in Christ and you deny yourself for His sake, you will find Him and you will never look back. You will never look back. You know, there are certain sins that I once loved, man. Like it could have been like, if, if, if you would have said like that sin with me and my nature, it would have been like equating the two, you know. And I just think about the extreme and radical and and immeasurable grace of God on my life today that I have no taste for those things. I have no taste, you know. It's, uh, it's similar to my wife, you know. If I can give you an illustration. There were certain things I loved to do before I met my wife, you know. Um, God just continually gives me a love for her. I thank God for her. She's precious to Him and precious to me, you know. And it was just like, you know, some days it was... I had other things that I could have went and done which I once loved. Um... But I'd lost the taste for them. You know, you want to go hang with the boys? The boys ask, you want to come hang? I was like, no, uh, I'm good. I'd rather just spend some time with my wife. I'd rather do this, I'd rather do that. Those things were um, one things I, things I once loved. And um, the love that God gave me for my wife. Um, other things just didn't seem, just didn't seem worth it anymore, you know? Certain things you leave behind. Now, that's the nature of life, right? You get married, you get children, you move out, and you, your life changes. That's good. That's good. That's the way it's supposed to be. You leave other things behind because you're pursuing a greater thing. You leave immaturity and you run immaturity. That's the Christian life. Your life should be marked by a lack of taste for certain things that you once had because the glories of Jesus Christ are just so wonderful. I remember coming to church the first times, you know, I hated it. I hated it. I did had no love for it, man. Um, I don't know what else I'd today I'd do without it. I don't know where else I'd be on the Lord's day um, if I wasn't here. Um, God's given me a love for His Word. God's given me, and I'm not. And, and know this, I'm not perfect. Um, even as your pastor, um, God still works on me daily. And there's things this week. There's things today. Let me say that. There's things today in which I have to deny myself, take up my cross, and follow Jesus. 2021. 2020 was rough. 2021 is going to be even rougher because I see. Um, myself. 2021 will only be rough um, if you're not in Christ and you don't know how to pursue Him. If you do, God will give you so much peace and joy and reason to build kingdom <laughs> in 2021 in the midst of darkness that you won't, you won't have enough time to do it all. That's the nature of Christianity. You know, Do you love yourself today? What does the gospel require? The gospel requires for you to follow Him. Take up your cross. Die daily and follow Him. Do you love yourself today more than Christ? I beg you to see His beauty, His majesty, His glory, His purity, and the suffering for which He died upon your behalf. And I beg you um, today, implore you upon the, um, the, the authority of Christ to believe, to repent, and to believe on Him today. And uh, if you're there, just keep on keeping on. <laughs> just keep on dying to self. Keep on clinging to Christ. And um, if you need help with anything, God's given the church, the people of God, 
um, as a tool to help um, lead you along and to encourage you, to edify, and to build you up, if nothing else, just to walk with you. And I'm willing to do that. God's given you something that um, you're convicted that you need to die to that. You need to mortify and kill it. Um, Christ is sufficient today. And one of the ways that um, he exhibits his sufficiency is through the people of God. So if you're struggling with something today and you need to kick the habit because you love Christ, then come, come talk to me. I'd love to walk with you through whatever it is. Uh, if nothing else, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask him to... Um, to, to Make this truth alive in our souls. Father, we love and thank you and praise you for the glories of Christ and for what it means to be a Christian. Father, I know that it seems harsh and it was one day with me, um, but I don't look back. Father, give me a heart and a spirit like um, the apostle himself. I look back and not cling and grip to the things of the past, Father. I'm thinking that they were anything, um, anything worth hanging on to anyway. Father, you are amazing. Father, your son is just phenomenal. God, the grace is just out of this world. That you would take a man like Paul, you would take a man like me, Father, who blasphemed your name and walked in an opposite direction and gave his life to pleasure and whatever else have you. God, that you'd send your only son to die upon a cross on our, on our, our behalf. God, it's inconceivable. It's inconceivable. Um, and that's why we glory in you. That's why we glory in you. So, Father, give us the unction, give us the power, give us the strength, give us the spirit, Father, to follow after. As we know that on most days, the, the, the lights and the trinkets and the little things of this world, Father, would distract us. God, help us to keep Christ ever before our minds and our thinking um, such that it causes us to pursue you, um, to spend and to be spent, Father, whatever call that is in our lives, whatever that may look like. God, I pray that if somebody today doesn't know Christ the Savior, that today, Father, would be the, the day of their salvation, that they would see the necessity of uh, believing and repenting, God, and you would enable them to do that. God, we need you for all things in all of life, Father. Um, 2020, 2021's uh, difficult years. Father, we just pray for your peace and your, um, and your care, Father, in the coming days. Help us to strive and to follow after you, Father, whatever the cost may be, because we recognize that you are worth it. In Jesus' name, amen.